So I'd like to begin this morning with a bit of congregational participation, all right? So, so get ready for that. Who here has moved to Grand Cayman in the last, let's say, four or five months? Raise your hand if you would for me. You moved to Grand Cayman in the last four or five months. So just if you would, from where you're sitting, and you don't have to raise your hand or anything, when people ask you what brought you to Grand Cayman, what are some reasons you typically give? Just shout it out for me if you don't mind. Travel. Okay. What else? What's that? Work. Very good. The beach. That's absolutely the beach. All right, so, so that, that's one group of people who are probably here this morning. Some of you are here who've had contracts come and go, but you've decided to stay put. All right, and then there's some more of you here who are, who are born and raised here, and you've decided against an opportunity that may have come your way to leave and go somewhere else. Instead, you've elected to stay behind. When people ask you why, why did you stay here? What are some reasons you've given? Shout it out for me. The beach. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you, Ann. The beach. What else? The people. Absolutely. Family. You have family here? That's, that's, that's a great one. What else? No taxes. Very good. That's, a, that's an American for you right there. What else? It's familiar. It's becomes familiar. It's a great reason. Okay, so I got one more question. All of us know someone who has left. All right, and many of us have contemplated. I mean, maybe you're even here this morning, and you're going to be leaving soon. Let me ask you, what are some reasons when you share about your leaving or you hear someone talk about leaving for their, their exodus from Cayman, what are some reasons you hear people give for leaving? Roll over. So you have to leave. <laughs> what are some others? A new job. Going back to family. Absolutely. It's too hot. <laughs> Sounds like that's a Canadian for you right there. I love it. <laughs> what we're basically saying, there's a few categories, right? We heard job, and that's, the, that's one category, right? What a person does, often a reason for change. Where I grew up, or where I've always wanted to live, so where a person dwells. I think the third main category we're also mentioning is, is the family and friends, other people you want to, to do and dwell with. These are all fine answers. Thank you guys for your participation. That was fantastic. When, when I was approached with a different situation about a year ago, Katie and I found it quite easy to stay put. And we cited some of the reasons you guys gave as well for that. But we don't often hear people say, do we? If we're really honest, we don't often hear people say, I stayed put because God called me. Or I left because God called me. Do we? We're honest. And why is that? Is it merely because we don't want to sound sort of super spiritual, holier than now? Or is it because we've assumed that the Bible doesn't really give that kind of direction? It gives other kinds of direction, but not that kind of direction. See, Christians believe that God intervenes and speaks into our lives. The means by which he usually speaks are circumstances. Someone mentioned rollover earlier, right? Like, sometimes you, your contract just runs out, and you're not rehired, and you've got to go. But sometimes God speaks through prayer, through that still, small voice. 
through someone praying for you and with you. Sometimes he speaks through his church, through circumstances, prayer, through his people, through the church. But one means trumps them all because it's written in ink and translated for us in English, the very word of God. We have quite a bit of wisdom in God's word regarding calling, especially in places like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and some of the wisdom literature. We also have a number of examples in God's word about God calling people to different jobs, to different people, to different places. And we see, for instance, sometimes God calls people audibly. He called a man named Abram to pack up and leave his home to a place he never knew and didn't even know along the way he was going. He calls Isaiah and Jeremiah to go and preach and speak to a people that God says ahead of time, they're not going to listen to you. They were called into that. He calls Paul to go and live and serve people he spent most of his life despising. God says, I want you to go to them. He also calls through circumstances. Not always audibly, sometimes through circumstances. Joseph interprets dreams in high places. He was elected second in command over all of Egypt, not though because he heard God's voice and obeyed, trusting him, but because his brothers did not like how he dressed and how he talked about himself. And so they sold him into slavery. Circumstances. Part of Joseph's calling. Consider also centuries of kings in the Old Testament. Many righteous and God-fearing like Hezekiah and Josiah who were basically called by God only because they were the firstborn male to their mother and father. Circumstances, right? So we have wisdom when considering calling. We have real historical examples, but we don't have any prescriptive teaching or definitive direction in this matter from God's word, or so I thought. I remember years ago, because living in Cayman, where so many contemplate change so often, even God's people decided a few years ago I needed to search the scriptures more diligently, and I realized there's one place in the Bible to take up this question. Should I stay or should I go? 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So let's turn there, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that's going to be on page 818. If you want to use one of the Bibles we provided, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, we have Bibles in these chair pockets at the end of these aisles as well. Uh, You'll want to grab a Bible and follow along, so hail a Bible if you need to, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now let me just share with you as you look that up what's been my prayer this week. It's, it's in this, that we would listen and respond to the Word of, of God, what the Word of God says, not what we previously assumed it didn't say. Do you know what I mean by this? I'll explain. For the vast majority of us, there are just things in God's Word that we read and it just kind of passes us by. Right? Maybe we just don't get it or we haven't read it before and we don't really want to deal with it, or it's just kind of bland, and we just move on. And, and to be honest, if, you, if you're reading through 1 Corinthians, you've ever read this book before, 1 Corinthians 7, and this section we're going to read in particular, may qualify under such a passage, when we just kind of quickly move by. But now if we read it, and we listen to someone explain it, and it kind of hits us, it challenges us with what we previously assumed it didn't say. We thought that the Word of God didn't address that. And that's the real test, isn't it? It's the test for what the Bible really has as a role in our lives. We allow this, we allow what God says to really change us, to really help us make decisions about life. 
1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 17. We'll read through verse 24. This is the word of the Lord. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was when he went at the time of his call already circumcised. Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. This is God's word. We immediately need to deal with the distinction we can sense Paul is trying to balance, or at least I hope you can sense, and it's this what we call, what theologians have called, a primary and secondary calling. When the New Testament speaks about calling, it's almost exclusively so in terms of God calling people into relationship with himself through Jesus Christ. Almost exclusively, that, when the Bible says calling, it's about God calling us to himself through Jesus Christ. All right, so for example, this, these are primary callings. 1 Peter 2 Verse 9, where it says, Him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Romans 1, 6 through 7, where Paul says, Including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. 1 Corinthians 1 9, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son. Jesus Christ, our Lord. One more here. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. Paul says, I am writing to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, those who are made holy by what Jesus has done, who are called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, this is important. I'm going to move past primary calling here for a minute, but it's so important because if you spend your life trying to figure out what to do, where to dwell, with whom, to do those things and dwell with, let me tell you, you're going to need more than a change of scenery to make you content. You're going to need a changed heart because you'll never be satisfied with the change of scenery in your life. You can move, you can shift, you can always be seeking. It will never be perfect. It will never be perfect. Even now, you can trust your life to Jesus who can change your heart. That is God's primary call, His primary invitation to you and me. Now, secondary calling. Rarely does the New Testament speak of this. Speak of location, vocation, and people groups to which people are called. Certainly, doesn't give any explicit guidance on this here in our passage this morning. In fact, the two different uses of this idea of calling, primary and secondary, salvation and the kind of location, vocation idea, are summarized right here in verse 20. Let's look at that together. Here's a great summary of these two ideas. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. It's very clear from the context here, right? 
reading this again, having thought through this issue, what Paul is saying is the calling to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And when God does that, the condition is the things that you're already doing, the people you're already relating with, and the place you already live. So whereas previously we may have objected, look, God's will, his call, it's so mysterious. It's so unknowable. I can't quite get it. That I might as well just go with my gut and make my own decision, make my own plans. But here we see that the Apostle Paul gives us a starting place, a baseline, and it is this in a nutshell. When it comes to calling, the biblical God speaking to you default is to remain. When it comes to calling, the biblical God speaking to you, default, is to remain. Let me walk us through this statement if I, if I can. First, default. Now, I know that really excites you. You're thinking about calling. You're thinking about all the exciting possibilities about your future, and I'm talking about default, right? That probably does not excite you. We immediately balk at this because it's default. That doesn't count because it's not uniquely just for me, me the snowflake. But this is God speaking here in his word to you, to me, to us, and the emphasis is on us. A really fine historian, a guy named Mark Knoll, made this comment about a significant shift in church history. He said, up through the early 1700s, now granted, that's almost 1700, that's 1,700 years of church history, right? British Protestant Christians preached on God's plan for the church. From the mid-1700s, however, evangelicals have emphasized God's plan for the individual. So there's been a shift And it's a relatively new shift, right? 1,700 years, less than 400 years. It's understandable because for 1,700 years, 1,600 years, the church was so strong and most people were illiterate, right? They couldn't read the Bible for themselves. The church had a say in everything. And whatever they say went, you were dedicated to the church and everything was all about the church. And finally, the Bible was printed and people's languages, and you realize, oh, actually God calls individuals to himself through faith in Jesus Christ. So that was so important. But what Mark Knoll says is the pendulum has kind of swung too far. Now we only think about Christianity, about knowing God in terms of our individual relationship with him. God calls you to himself, but also us to himself and to one another, the church. In fact, when Paul says you in the New Testament, he's almost always saying y'all. Right, sorry. It's, it's perfect. The plural you. We need to have a word in English for plural you. So I'm just going to use y'all. You have to deal with it. I'm so sorry. The Corinthians, who are probably a lot like us, would say, look, but Paul, we're different. I'm unique. This is the multicultural, sea-trading, transient Corinth. Which sounds a lot like K-Man, doesn't it? Paul responds to this objection to, look at verse 17. This is my rule for all the churches. Hey guys, I know you're in a different place. I know you feel like you're unique, and you are. But this is true for all the churches. The best thing to do is to stay where you are, what you're doing, with whom you're doing it. But now do it, live it, and love them because Jesus has done it. He's lived it, and he's loved you. He's made you holy, and he's made holy where you live, and what you do. You can do it for him, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I'll address more of that later. Let me say one more thing here. There are a couple differences between then and now. The circumstances of this passage in our life. The first one is that Paul is writing his first letter to entirely new Christians. 
All right, this is the new church, first generation Christians he's writing to here. Now, for some of you, you may have responded to God's primary call in your life to trust Jesus prior to what you're doing now as a job or vocation, who you're living with, right, and where you are. So you think, well, wait a minute, this, this is difficult then for me to apply. In fact, you might even read this and think, dang, I may have made a mistake moving here. <laughs> maybe in your decision-making, maybe not. We know that God is sovereign. It doesn't really matter because you're here now. You're with these people in a good church now, doing what you do now. So you can only apply this passage to your life now. So don't, don't worry too much about that decision you made maybe to live here and come here. I should also mention another difference from this passage to our life now is that the issue of where was really a non-option for those to whom Paul writes compared to today's globalized world of instant, quick information and travel, right? It's very different. There was travel, but most people came, kept the same address. So Paul doesn't give an example in our passage of like home base Henry versus nomadic Ned. Right? He doesn't give an example of that because most people had the same address their whole lives. And they did some sea travel, just the way it was. But the reasons for why we move elsewhere parallel Paul's two examples. We typically move elsewhere because of people or because of a job. And that is right here in this passage. It may not be in the way we expect it, right? Circumcision versus all natural, slave versus free are not issues for you at this point. But they get to the matters of who and what and thus to the matter of where. So let's dig in and look further at this. The issue of who. The issue of who. All right, first, the the who example of remaining. Let's read this together, verses 18 and 19. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the mark of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So Paul says, look, you're asking guys, what is God calling you to? Who is he calling you to? Is he calling you to a different kind of people? Uh, Theologians would call this a socio-religious historical background, but that's just a fancy way of saying with whom you hang out, the, the, the kinds of things you tend to believe, and where you come from. Are these signs of God calling you to something different? Right? Who you hang out with, the kinds of things you tend to believe, and where you tend to come from. Are these the sign that God is saying, I'm calling you elsewhere? When God decided to make a nation for himself in his glory, he asked them to confirm that they were his nation by an outward sign called circumcision. Something else was set apart <laughs> so that they could show that they were set apart for God. And that was what circumcision really was. And when Jesus gave the offer for us to put, to put God in us for free. The transformation began from the inside out. Does that make sense? So the change wasn't something you did to yourself on the outside. It's something that began in, in the inside of you and shows itself. And the Bible calls this spiritual fruit. When you start to produce love and joy and peace and gentleness and self-control, these are the signs that you love Jesus and know him. So you no longer need an outward sign on your body to show it. So on the one hand, some people who had become Christians after getting circumcised said, hey, well, then we should just get rid of it. This is the new thing. Let's be part of the new thing. Let's do that. 
Let's try to get rid of it. And so you could actually have a procedure called an epispasm. And I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that right because I did not even want to look it up on Google, what that might be, all right? I, I didn't want to see what the physical appearance being reversed of, of circumcision. Like, that was just ungoogleable. So I hope I'm, E-P-I-S-P-A-S-M. That's how you spell it if you're curious. But you can actually have this done. And people were doing it. So Paul, that's why Paul says, don't seek to remove the marks of circumcision. On the other hand, which is also explained in verse 18, many Jews who trusted Jesus got nervous. They started talking to themselves. With all these non-Jews trusting our God, Yahweh, God of the Bible, how are our ways, how are our traditions, how are our history be safeguarded? How can we keep all this? Surely, we need some sort of external standard to make sure people aren't freeloading or frauding their way into the kingdom. Right? Salvation by faith alone? Okay, but let's also do some things, you know, keep with everything in the Old Testament. Step number one, get circumcised. So what happens? You get two groups of people, don't you? You get division. Not only dividing nations and peoples, but also lunch tables, much more practically. We see this actually happen in the Bible. Not only with lay people, with the highest leader in the church at this time. Look at Galatians. I'm sorry, Galatians 2, 11 through 14. It's going to be up on the screen for you if you want to look there. This is Paul speaking. And he says, he talks about this time when, when Peter, Cephas, came to Antioch. And, Peter, and, and Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, in other words, people who were coming up from Jerusalem who were circumcised, before that he was eating with Gentiles, no problem. He had to have lunch with them, etc. But when, when they came, he drew back. He separated himself. He feared the circumcision party, what, what they thought about him. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, to Cephas, before them all, if you, though you're a Jew, you've been living like a Gentile, not like a Jew, why are you forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, why are you saying to the Gentiles, it's better to be at this lunch table, it's better to be over here, with the cool kids, with the Jewish people who are now also Christians. Peter actually changes lunch tables under social pressure. He goes to eat with the people you want to eat with in the church. The Jewish Christians were like the high school seniors at your high school, okay? All that history, all that being cool for so long, and now they believe in all the new cool things as well, like Christianity. But they were also the Peter around the people with whom Peter would feel the most comfortable, right? These are my people. I'm comfortable with them. They're the cool people. And it sounds so juvenile, right? Like moving to a new lunch table. It sounds so juvenile, but that, isn't that exactly what we do when we relocate based on people? When most of us move, we are declaring, this lunch table, this one over here, has people who make me feel better about myself. We have more history between us, and I'm more comfortable with them because they accept the lifestyle that I choose. That's more comfortable. Now let me save this first. There are some folks for whom that's an exception. They, maybe you've fallen into something so deep and dark, so addictive, that to stay would be deadly. It would, it would be like spiritual suicide. Some people have to change locations because staying among the people they're with is deeply damaging. But that's like the 1%. What Paul is saying to most of us and to Peter is remain among the people with whom you're already relating. 
because they are equally right with Jesus or equally need Jesus. Let me say that one more time. Remain among the people with whom you're already relating because they are right with Jesus or they equally need Jesus. God's default is to remain, not to choose the cool kids at the other lunch table just because it makes you feel more comfortable. But he also gives us a what example, a job example, a vocational example of remaining. That comes in verse 21. Let's look at that together. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Before I relate slavery to one's job choice or vocation, now that's a big leap. I got some explaining to do. Right? Here, they didn't necessarily just say, oh, I want, a, I want another job. I'll go get one. In the first century Roman Empire, there wasn't a vast difference, actually, between being a slave and your average Joe. Slave and free were not distinguishable, first of all, based on race, speech, or clothing. Slaves were not segregated from the rest of society. They weren't in chains. It wasn't that kind of thing in the first century. In a place like Corinth, it would have been about a third of the population would have been slaves. What had happened was this. Most slaves typically got into debt. They sold themselves into slavery. And then the master would pay off the debt. Then you would spend a while, right, paying the master back while you still earned a modest wage for yourself. Right, so there were very few slaves for life. You'd pay it off while earning money for yourself, and you'd live life. In fact, one comment makes the argument that this kind of slavery, this kind of slavery, I should be very clear, was preferable to the blue-collar freedmen simply because of the job security it provided. It was a way to say, I have this job, I'm getting a modest wage, I want to keep working, so I'll belong to you for this time. It was what it is. So you have people, even happy people, who are wondering, well, now that I've been freed in Christ, should I keep on with this job? Should I keep on doing this the way I've been doing it for all this time? And what Paul says is, don't worry about it. Remain. How can he say this? Because through Jesus Christ, every job can be done well to glorify him. Every vocation is a boss and co-workers who need to see the gospel lived out and who need to hear it as well. Every job. But what about that perfect job that fulfills me in every way and satisfies me and means I accomplish something in life? Should I just give up on that? Paul's not saying it's not out there, but he is saying don't worry about it too much. In fact, hoping for that perfect job in that perfect place at the perfect time, if you hope in that too much, it's a problem for your relationship with God. It can become a problem. There was a time in history when people forgot about this. If you were like a priest, a bishop, or someone really important in the church, that was like irrefutably better than every other job. And the church kept preaching that and preaching that. It was far superior to anything else. Then a man named Martin Luther rediscovered the Bible and the main message of it. That you're rescued from eternal death. And you're rescued to Jesus by grace through faith. A free gift, not by anything you can do on your own. So now that everyone has access to God through faith, any job can be done to glorify and honor him. Does that make sense? Luther asserted that God called man to labor because God labors, but not just that, but God labors at common occupations. He said that God is the tailor who makes the deer a coat that will last for a thousand years. He's the shoemaker who provides the boots that the deer won't even outlive. God is the butler He said, who sets out a feast for sparrows and spends more on them annually than even the king of France spends. That was a little shot at France from Luther. I think a German. You can find a parallel for your own job, of course. If you invest money, 
God invests his spirit in people, a deposit guaranteeing an everlasting return. If you're a teacher, meet the rabbi. In other words, by doing your job to the glory of God, to the good of others, you can become more like the God who has already been doing your job far before you started. That is the what example of remaining we see in this passage. Why does God do it this way? Why, when a man, and God calls a man to himself, why might he choose remaining as the default versus changing? After all, you know, it might make sense to have a fresh start vocationally and locationally to go along with your fresh start spiritually. Right? That might make the most sense, actually. Clean slate. The key to answering this, I think, lies in Paul's final verses here on this matter of secondary calling. Look at this starting in verse 22. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he was called is a slave to Christ. And that's a pretty profound statement Paul is making. He's saying perfect freedom is not self-governing autonomy. Perfect freedom is not self-governing autonomy if there's one who knows more than us and chooses the best for us every time. If there's someone we could submit to who knows far more of the possibilities out there than us, who knows far more all the intricacies of what might happen, what might go on, and he chooses the best for us every time. Perfect freedom is found in being a well-loved slave of Jesus Christ. Uh, In his book, The Prodigal God, Tim Keller shares this um, little bit about a well-regarded sort of foreign film called Three Seasons. It's a series of vignettes in post-war Vietnam. One of the stories in this short film is about Hai. He's a bicycle rickshaw driver and Lan, who's a beautiful prostitute. Both have deep, unfulfilled desires. Hai loves Lan. He loves Lan. Lan lives in grinding poverty, longs to live in a beautiful world where she works, but she never gets to sleep there. She never gets to spend the night in that world. She hopes that the money she makes through prostitution will be her means of escape. But instead, of course, it brutalizes and enslaves her. So High one day enters this rickshaw race, and he wins the top prize. And with the money, he brings land to the hotel. He pays for the night, and he pays her fee- for fee. And then to everyone's shock, he tells her that he just wants to watch her fall asleep. Instead of using his power and wealth to have sex with her, He spends it to purchase a place for her for one night in a normal world to fulfill her desire to belong to that world. Now, Lan, she finds such grace troubling at first. She she thinks that Han has done this to control her. Right? So that she'll now be his puppet. But when it comes apparent that he's using his power to serve her rather than to use her, it begins to transform her. begins to make it impossible for her to return to a life of prostitution. Now, in her wildest dreams, freedom must have looked like for her was earning enough to break free from everyone. But never in her wildest dreams could she imagine the perfect freedom would entail being bought by someone who infinitely loved her more than the world she so desired. But that was true freedom. And so Paul says here in verse 23, you were bought at a price. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. I hope you hear the tenderness in which Paul is saying this. You were bought at a price. Don't become slaves of men again. How, do you, how could you possibly enslave yourself just by making a choice 
about where you live, what you do, or with whom you do it with. To buy into a false hope that the world entices us with. That you'll become more free, you'll become more satisfied, more fulfilled under different social settings, right? A different place and a different job. That's the enticement the world is constantly sharing with us. People are constantly talking about commercials, advertisements, things that pop up through your ad blocker doesn't catch on your screen. Constantly. God chooses remaining as a default over change because each change in our life marks a potential change in hope. Here's what I mean. Each time you change jobs, change places, change social settings, it's part and parcel of your belief is that now things will be better. Now things will improve. Now my life will finally be what I've always wanted it to be. You've shifted your hope more and more and more. You shift it. And each time you hope that change will change you, you reinforce your status as a slave. You're buying into what the world is enslaving us with. You give in to what the world says change will deliver you, change will save you, change will make all the difference if you just give in to it. Wisdom says literally, Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred always makes the heart sick. Hope deferred. That's an interesting choice of words, isn't it, that wisdom uses. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred is is when your hope is, is changed just a little bit. It gets a little off the mark when it gets, shifts a little bit from your identity in Christ, and you rely on that change to save you, to deliver you, to make your life better, it'll always end in heart sickness. There's no other way it'll end. So this morning I've asked a question. You know, where do you want me? We've asked a question, I hope. Where do you want me, God? What should I do with my life? With whom should I do it? But these aren't really the questions we start out with, are they? For those of us with jobs in a good church in a democratic land, more honestly, we ask the question, God, where do you want me next? What should I do with my life next? With whom should I do it next? And I just want to if a gentle warning, friends. These are questions of misplaced hope. By always wandering to what's next, we are further enslaving ourselves to the world. Close here at verse 24. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. When you consider God's call, be sure to start with God's baseline, his default, which is remaining. Perhaps the change God really wants to work in your life is the change of making you ever more like his son, Jesus Christ. You may feel like that's going nowhere, but there is God. That's what that verse says, right? Remain with God, who is our guaranteed next, the next place of refuge, the next boss who will always reward your work, the next person next to whom there are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, I know that many of us, because a lot of people have told me, they're going through questions of, should I change something about our life, my life? Should I make that next step? And we see here in your word that the first place to start is to rest and remain. The baseline. That doesn't mean you might not call us somewhere else, but your default through your word is to remain and not focus so much on changing our circumstances but being changed by you into your, more like your son, Jesus Christ. To do the work we've been called to do, but do it to the glory of God and the benefit of others. Because you have so done for our benefit. You've so loved us and the work you've done on our behalf. Father, we're tempted that maybe a, a change of scenery will give us the, the fulfillment we need. 
when you've given us everything we need for godly lives right here where we live. Help us not put our hope there, nor in going back to be with a certain people. How often, Lord, we overlook the people you've put in our path, people we've maybe been a little bit even prejudiced against because we feel like they're going to be better people where we grew up or better people where we once lived, people who will really get me if they speak like me and talk like me. And God, it's just another way that we misplace our hope. We want to put our hope squarely in you, Jesus, and what you've done for us. So this morning with part one, we just ask that you would give us rest and help those of us here who maybe never heard your word talk about life decisions before. Help us really listen to the word this morning and respond accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.